Welcome to Bone to Pick, the official podcast of Hip Bone Music and Michael Davis. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hipbonemusic or find us on Twitter at hipbonemusic. Bone to Pick features interviews with legends of the musical field conducted by the hip bone himself, Mr. Michael Davis. Hi everybody, Michael Davis here at Hip Bone Music and our Artist of the Month series, Bone to Pick. I am really, really excited uh, for this month's Bone to Pick interview with, for my money, the greatest French horn player in the world today, Mr. Phil Myers. Phil is the principal horn of the New York Philharmonic. He has been for the past 33 years. Uh, he is a true virtuoso uh, and in every sense of the word, and he is an amazingly bright and insightful uh, gentleman. Uh, I was honored to sit down with him, and he was very candid and emotional and inspiring. And uh, all the advice that he had to give to, to all of us as brass players, it was uh, quite amazing that he would share so many things, uh, especially for a player of that stature and somebody who's achieved as much as he had. He was very open and very honest. So really hope you get as much out of uh, the interview as I did. I found it to be just fantastic. Um, I hope everybody's summer's off to a great start. Things are uh, going well here in New York. Really enjoying playing the show Pippin. Picked up uh, four Tony Awards last week, so that's a great thing and uh, kind of ensures that we'll get a nice run out of it and uh, really enjoy playing the music. It's a great band, a great conductor, and it's really a lot of fun. I've got a couple exciting um, clinic guest artist appearances coming up, uh, along with my really good buddy, Dr. John Brummel, out in the East Bay in California. We're going to be... Uh, having a brass day out there called Brass Bonanza on August 3rd. Come out and check us out. We're going to uh, be doing all kinds of great stuff. And I, I love the title because uh, the guy who actually played Hoss on the series Bonanza uh, is my cousin. His name's Dan Blocker. So uh, kind of appropriate. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we're going to finish that day with a, a get-together down at Gordon Biersch in San Jose, sponsored by the great Dan Gordon, who's an amazing guy, an amazing brewer, uh, businessman, trombone player. Uh, it's the total package, as we say. And right after that, I'm heading down to Guadalajara, Mexico, where I'll be a guest artist at the uh, Tonica Festival and Seminar. be teaching for a week and giving some concerts. So uh, lots of good stuff on the horizon. And I also wanted to say one more time, we've got the 10-minute uh, warm-up. It's inching towards completion. <laughs> um, we're doing good. Uh, got the tracks completed. Um, Phil Smith is coming in to record the trumpet uh, in July. So we're really uh, excited about it. It's 12 new exercises uh, with three variations per exercise, all new tracks. It's really some killer stuff. Uh, I'm really happy with the way the tracks turned out. And the whole thing is really um, working out great. So I'm looking forward to getting it out there and getting your guys' response to it. And I hope you like it. Um, and in the meantime, keep checking us out here on Bone to Pick. And I appreciate you checking out this month's interview. I know you're going to get out a lot, a lot out of hearing what Phil has to say. So enjoy, and we will check you next time on Bone to Pick. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. We are coming to you today uh, high above West 64th Street, about a block away from Lincoln Center. And our featured artist this month uh, spends a good deal of his time at Lincoln Center. And for my money, he is one of the greatest French horn players of all time, probably my personal favorite, Mr. Phil Myers. Uh, Phil has been the principal horn of the New York Philharmonic for the last 33 years. And I think by anyone's estimation, he is a true virtuoso uh, of his instrument. Um, I have been very fortunate to work with Phil uh, many, many times throughout the years here in New York uh, in the studios. Uh, television commercials, motion picture soundtracks, CDs, 
Uh, I was very fortunate that he played on my Brass Nation and new Brass CDs. And uh, anytime you get Phil to play on your project, you're going to get uh, get your money's worth because he is just brings so much to the table as a musician and as a person. He's a very candid and honest individual, and I am really looking forward to. Uh, uh, this interview here this afternoon. Uh, we uh, Phil was gracious enough to uh, allow us into his apartment, which is uh, 35 floors up on West 64th Street. And uh, I guess this used to belong to Ice-T. So uh, evidently, Phil's hip hop career is not dead quite yet. Um, but anyway, Phil, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule and for allowing us uh, to come into your apartment today. Yeah. And uh, I figured maybe we'll just uh, jump in with... Uh, how you got started in music as a young person, and uh, and I know you grew up in uh, what maybe uh, we could call the brass manufacturing capital of the world, Elkhart, Indiana. Um, you know what kind of uh, made you gravitate to the French horn? Well, you know, oddly enough, I started out wanting to play the trombone, hmm. and my father was band director, so. You know, it wasn't one of those deals where they were saying, the only thing we've got left is a truck. No. You know, and it was Elkhart, for God's sake. So, I mean, you, you could have whatever. <laughs> had plenty of it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I started out, I had a trombone at home, and I was sitting there playing it and stuff like that. And then the day came when you had to circle on a piece of paper which instrument you wanted to play. And I'm just looking down the list for trombone, and I go past French horn. And, of course, I knew what the instruments were because I'd, I'd grown up with my, you know, my father being a band director. But... Still, at age nine, I was looking down this list, and as I was looking for trombone, I scanned back past French horn, and I saw, I saw French, French horn. I think it was French, French horn. I thought, wow, that, that sounds classy. I like that. that sounds, and I, <laughs> I circled it because the name French horn sounded classy. And then, I, and my father, looking at it that night, said, I thought you wanted to play trombone. I said, yeah, I, I changed my mind. And that was it. It was so, so irrational. So, so irrational. You just don't know what the heck you're doing well, at nine the, years old, you know. So, yeah, and then I just started, you know, that was that's it. That's great. Well, all the orchestral trombone players in the world are glad you have found that to be classy and went to French horn, I'm sure. Um, well, who were some of your early influences uh, musically and maybe some of your early favorite uh, French horn players that uh, you got inspiration from? Well, listen, I hate to say it, but I mean, you know, in 19, let's see, I started in 1958. I'm 63. So, I mean, nine years old, I was 1958. You know, there weren't like 200 horn records out there. I mean, right. the one that everybody had was was Dennis Brain playing the four Mozart controls. And I mean, you know, I don't care what, I mean, that's everybody's favorite, no matter what instrument they play. And I think it would be impossible for me to play any of those concertos even now and not somewhat just be imitating what I heard as a nine-year-old because uh, he, had such a, he had such a great sound. They'd been able to represent that on an LP, I think even better than they ever were able to on a CD. And so it was such a, it was such a fantastic example of, of, of what you wanted to sound like. And I remember, like, my father had a, a, a friend of his that he'd gone to Oberlin with that was a horn player, Marvin Howe. He wrote a couple of horn methods, and he, and he used to teach at Interlochen. And he came over, and he would, you know, they were both, like, what, 40-something, and I, I insisted that he listened to this record, you know, and of course, of course, he'd listened to this record a hundred times, but, you know, he humored me. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think that was the big one. And then, and then of course, I, I ended up going to study with uh, 
the social, we, we, we lived, Elkhart's 100 miles from Chicago, so it was a pretty, pretty close trip. Mm-hmm. And so I started out with Frank Brauch, who was the associate first horn player in Chicago. But then a friend of mine in Elkhart was studying with Clevenger, who had just shown up, just shown up in Chicago. He just retired now, but he had just shown up. This was 1966. So I called him up and I said, I'd like to come, uh, you know, study with you. And, of course, I didn't know what I know now, and that is when you first get to a town, nobody wants to study with you. So, so he's, I was surprised he accepted me as a student. But the fact was he'd just gotten there, so he was, mm. ta- he was taking anybody that called. Uh-huh. And I remember he said, it's, tw- it's $20. And in 1966, you know, 60, uh, that was a lot of money. And, of course, driving in and out of Chicago was added, added to it. So I wasn't sure my father was going to go for that, but he did. Mm. So, and, oh, my God, I went into that lesson, and I had never heard somebody play French horn so strongly. And, I mean, from two feet away. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was, all, it was, it was shocking mm-hmm. and so inspiring. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I heard that guy play so much with that orchestra in the next uh, seven years. It was just, just unbelievable. I'll just give you one example. I went to hear him play the Vorjak Chalukdrero, and you know it goes. Right, and he and and on that second time around, he went. And he, I mean, he added almost, and I'm telling you, you could see everybody in the audience, including me, when that happened. There was, <laughs> it was just wow, such command of the audience. So anyway, it was very inspiring to be studying with him and being able to go hear him. And then one day I walked in and I said, I want to play a couple of things for you because I'm going to go audition for Oberlin because my father had gone there, my sister had gone there. Mm. And he said, well, he said, that maybe, maybe you want to go. I won't tell you what he actually said, but, <laughs> but he didn't think it was a good idea for me to go to Oberlin. And so he said, you should go. I said, well, where should I go? Because I'd never thought about anywhere else. And he said, um, Carnegie Mellon. I didn't even know where that was. Uh, it was in Pittsburgh, but uh-huh. I mean, I didn't know that. And he wanted me to study with his teacher, Forrest Stanley. Well, I'd never heard of him. So this seemed like a really uniquely bad idea to me right off the bat. <laughs> but, you know, that he basically what he said to me was this. He said, you know, you have so many playing problems that you need to go to somebody remedial, somebody that can really change almost everything you do. And he says, I, I either, I can't remember if he said I can't do it or I don't want to do it, but, I mean, really, basically the idea was to get me with somebody that could technically get me straightened out. And, you know, that was like, he was so right. Yeah, no, I needed that. Wow. I'm, it's interesting. I've, I've worked a little bit with, with Dale and, 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 and uh, of course, been a big fan of his playing over the years. And uh, I didn't know that uh, the association that you guys had. So that's, that's, that's a great uh, Great that you shared that with us, and I think uh, knowing you're playing the way I do, and knowing the history of Dale's playing, I can see the the lineage between the two of you. You're very kind of 
uh, the, the ultimate in brass playing to me. In other words, it feels like it's in your head and it comes out. You know, it's like you, you're able to just translate almost the way you just sang that. You know, it's, you're able to translate your musical thought and not have to deal with the apparatus. Of course you do, but um, you guys both seem to be able to, to make that, that leap, you know. Um, so it's well, nice wait, to hear that association. You know what? I mean, when I, when I think back on it, I think, I mean, if you said to me, what's the one thing you got from studying with that guy? It was absolutely, absolutely, no matter what you go to do with your sound, don't lose the strength of center. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think at, 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 his, at his best moments, the center of his sound was just so damn strong that it was really almost disturbing from 50 feet. It demanded your attention. Mm. And I think that, that I never was able to quite forget that. I mean, mm. I'm, I, I'm, that becomes a goal that I just have to pursue pretty much any time I pick up the horn mm. because it made so much of an impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sure seems like you've got that as well. So it's, uh, I appreciate you uh, uh, sharing those thoughts. That's really great. So, um, Following Carnegie Mellon, you uh, held positions in the Atlantic Symphony Orchestra in Halifax, uh, Pittsburgh Symphony, Minnesota Orchestra. Um, maybe you could take us through those formative years and what those experiences were like and how it maybe shaped you for what was going to happen to you later in New York. And I understand, you know, we've talked about it before, uh, some somewhat turbulent uh, times in there uh, going through those orchestras, but maybe you could, as much as you'd like, uh, share some of those, your thoughts about those years. Well, I mean, I mean, the long and the short of it is this. At every stage, you have to try and figure out what, what, you know, what you need to know. And I mean, I started out, I got really lucky. I mean, the first, the first eight auditions I took, I lost seven out of eight, but I, but but the one I won happened to be the the second one I took. So you know, I've often thought uh, that you know the big difference between a professional and and somebody doing it as a hobby is that a professional a lot of times got a, got lucky enough to get a job early on, mm-hmm. and then if you've got a job, you're getting to practice your stuff on the job. You've got time off the job to practice. Basically, you're just afforded more practice time than the guy that hasn't been lucky enough to get that job and ends up like, you know, being a band director or something. You know, I mean, he's probably got just as much talent as you do. He just doesn't have the time. And so I got lucky. I got a job, and the job really gave me a lot of time because it was only five services a week, and it didn't pay very much. But I had a house right on the Atlantic Ocean for ninety bucks a month. <laughs> the heat wasn't the heat wasn't so good. The heat got a little cool. But uh, but I mean but but you know it was and and here was a great thing, I could go on that job, with a tuba mouthpiece on my horn and like check it out and like nobody was giving me any crap. You know if I if I had started out and like trying to like just hang on by my fingernails in the New York Philharmonic, I think I would have been screwed really. But I had a job where, like, I could experiment. Mm-hmm. But then the other experimentation was going out and figuring out what the heck was going to work for me in an audition. And I, I just got to tell you, like, like, my solution to this was obscene. And that was I came to the conclusion that what I was doing in auditions was I was going out and trying to hide my weakness as opposed to trying to present my strengths. So I decided what 
is my strength. And at that time, I felt my strength was playing loud, and my weakness was playing soft. That was quite clear to me. Every time I went into an audition and tried to play soft, I failed. And then I would consequently usually not even get into the second round. In fact, I don't think I ever got, I either won a job or lost in the first round. I don't even think I ever got to an intermediate round. So, um, so I decided, well, you know what, if loud's working and, and, and soft isn't, I'm going to try that. And so that, along with a, doing a count-off, where I always breathe the same and always put the mouthpiece on at the same time, stuff like that, before each excerpt. So I, again, it became a count-off that I joined. I never felt like I was beginning an excerpt. I felt like I was joining a count-off. Mm -hmm. That, and I play everything loud. I decided I'm, I'm, only gonna, I'm just going to play everything loud. So, man, they put, they put the softest excerpt in front. I just played it loud. And all of a sudden, I won, I won five out of six auditions wow. doing that, I, which is really obnoxious because, I mean, I wasn't <laughs> going out there and trying to be a musician. I was just going out there and, like, presenting my strength, period. Mm -hmm. I wasn't hiding my weakness because I wasn't even going near my weakness. And, and that, that, really, that, really wow. changed, that really changed. Isn't that crazy? Well, it's a great idea. I mean, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try that myself. Well, I, form, but, uh, I think I formalized it in this regard. Now when I practice, uh, since that time, when I practice, I try and spend 80% of my time doing my strength. Mm -hmm. And only 20% of my time dealing with the weaknesses. Now, and, I've, I, and I've come to feel with my students that if they spend a dominant amount of their time working on their weakness, it puts them into sort of a, a, a in sort of a a, a, a cautious state, mm -hmm. a state where they're 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 thinking about their weakness more than they're thinking about their strength. So I really try and encourage my students to like to like figure out what they think their strength is, and do that most of the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's the way to go. Frank. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a. So anyway, I did. I got that got me out of there to Pittsburgh, and then I got then I then I had a weird scene in Pittsburgh where where you know in the in the, in, the, in the symphony business. In February, you have to sign for the following September through September school year. And twice when I was in Pittsburgh, I won auditions after I'd already had to sign for the next year, and Pittsburgh wouldn't let me go. And the first orchestra that happened to was Dallas, and when I called up Dallas and said, you know, I can't get out for a year, they said, well, we're going to have to hire somebody. And then the next time, it was Minnesota, and uh, they decided to wait a year. Hmm. So that, then when the next February came around, I didn't sign in Pittsburgh. They advertised your job the next day in Pittsburgh. Boy, they're, 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 at least at that time, wow. they, they were very tough. Hmm. But, but I ended up going to Minnesota. And I, but my deal with Minnesota was this. I was, I was not a confident guy about changing jobs. And I was, felt pretty secure in Pittsburgh. I was playing third horn, and I felt like I, was doing, I could do that job pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know going back to first horn, because uh, I'd been playing first horn in Halifax, but like I say, it was not a demanding orchestra. Um, um, I was afraid. So I said, to the guy in, I said to the guy in Minnesota, I said, you gotta give me three years money. They can't give you three years, they can't give you tenure. But they can give you a three-year guarantee of money, and then if they fire you after a year and a half, you got a year and a half of money to live on until you, while you're trying to get another job, right? Sure, yeah. So I said, you got to show me three years, and, and uh, then I'll come. So he gave me three years, right? 
Six months later, I won this job. I mean, I mean, they gave me, they, they went without a first horn player for a year. Then they gave me a three-year contract. And then after six months, I went in and said, I want out of here. <laughs> I'm telling you, that guy was, he was a very so, nice guy, but his initial reaction was not positive. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so making you almost as popular as Kevin Garnett, Minnesota, for basketball fans. <laughs> so I said, I said, well, I said, you know what I said to him? I said, if you were in my position, what would you do? I said, well, okay, you're right, you got to go. So that was it. Then I came here. And Warren Deck was already here. Phil Smith was already here. Um, Alessi came about five years later. Uh, I, had, I joined a horn section. Personnel ch didn't change for 13 years. Hmm. Then it changed entirely. And right now we have, you know, one, one man who died, one man who moved to first turn in Metropolitan Opera, and one man who was, you know, in his late 60s and retired. So we're down three, and we've been down three for five years. Hmm. We only have three people in our section, and hmm. everybody else is, hmm. is, uh, is uh, coming in on a temporary basis. Wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah. 1980, you win the, the position in New York. Um, what was, take us through that maybe the audition process in New York, and then what, what are your memories looking back on those first, uh, first few years in New York? Do you know this story? I do not. <laughs> All right. Well, I came, they invited 25 people to come audition for First Tour in the Philharmonic. And they had us play in a very dead little dressing room. And the only person that survived that audition was... Jerome Ashby. He was the only, the only mm. person that like, got out of there. In fact, in fact, if you want to truth, he I, wasn't in the orchestra at that point then. No, no. In no, the section. No. I know he ended up in the section. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We, yeah, no. He, he, he ended up coming sooner than I did, but we won our jobs at the same time. I'll, well, I'll tell you. So, so, so I'm walking back to the dressing room with James Chambers, and I said, you know, I, I, I felt bad about the way I played. And I said, you know, I said, I have, I said, I'll never forget this. It was so embarrassing. I said to him, I said to him, you know, even though I just played very badly, I want you to know that I, I really look up to the way you played. And, and, and there really a lot of us out there that are trying to emulate what you did. And, and he looked at me and he said, and this is after he'd just listened to 25 guys try out for this job. He looked at me and he said, I have no reason whatsoever to think that that is true. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, yeah. oh, I really did play badly, you know. So, so, all right. So, so something weird was going on in the orchestra, and that is the first horn player had retired, and Zubin was under the misapprehension that the section wanted the associate first horn player to be moved to principal, and and that wasn't true. But he was under the impression it was. So when they said to him, the result, of this, the result of this audition, out of these 25 guys, was the only guy that had gotten through was a 22-year-old who had played one year in Mexico. He thought they were trying to give this other guy nobody to compete against. So mm. he said to the committee, hey, no. I've heard of these five guys. I want to hear them. I don't care what you're saying. Right? So I was one of those guys. And the only reason he'd heard from me about me was I was very close friends with the flute player in L.A. And I was 
you know, not quite as close, with the first oboe player here. So he had heard about me from both coasts, even though I was out there in the middle of nowhere, right, in mm -hmm. Minnesota, right? Mm -hmm. So, relatively speaking, the way New, <laughs> the way New Yorkers think, exactly. the way New Yorkers think. think, you know, because because the first thing Chambers said to me. Uh, when I got the job was, who in the hell are you? I'm right, yeah, I'm telling you, it's like he was coming through, he was coming through with the Zingers boy just as fast as he could. But anyway, they invited me back with like five other people, and that time the audition was on the stage, and I got, I got, I don't, I, this is one of the things you can't let upset you, but I mean, I, I felt so much more comfortable on that stage than I had in that little dry dressing room. And I just didn't have, as I, it was just easier to play well. Hmm. So, you know, they made me go, I mean, it made me go, I played 45 minutes, I think. And the thing I loved about that audition was they only had you play solos where you should take control of the situation. There wasn't one solo in there to check out, uh, you know, how much finesse. No, it was, hey, the goddamn ball is in your court, time to, time to carry it. And if you can't show us that you can carry this moment in a way that a member of that audience goes home and never forgets, mm. then we're not interested in you, period. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I mean, you know, once you saw what you were playing, you knew what the, I mean, unless you're an idiot, you knew what the game plan was. So, man, you just knew you had to clear house on everything you could. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I mean, I just happened to have a good enough day to, to get me the opportunity to come back and play Maurer first with them. Mm which I'd never done on first time. So I'm sitting out there warming up and just thinking, let me alone, right? And the personnel manager comes, Chambers comes and says, uh, Zubin wants to talk to you. So I go into his office, and this is the first experience with something that I came to realize later. And was, there were some things that he didn't conduct very well that he had come to the conclusion was a problem. Like for instance, he couldn't start the third movement of Mauer Five to save his life. And yet his conclusion was not that he couldn't start the third movement of Mauer 5, but rather that horn sections the world over had a problem with, had a problem with this passage, right? So he called me in and talked, logic. talked me through all these Mauer things in the first, and I'd never played it. So he would say to me, he would say to me, now here, I do this, right? And I'd, I'd say, I've never done it any other way. Because I'd never done it at all, so <laughs> so, so so anyway, it, it went well enough that they offered me the job, and so you know, Minnesota, unlike Pittsburgh, Minnesota let me go, you know, very quickly, and I came here, you know, in, in 1980, and felt damn glad to, you know, damn glad to be here. Always have, never thought I'd be here. For God's sake. You know, oddly <laughs> enough, the guys in Halifax claimed that when I, when I would get drunk in, 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 you know, back in those days, Canada, the bars were all men, no women. And, hmm. and we'd, go, we'd have a three-hour rehearsal. We'd go in there and just spend the rest of the day. I mean, the rest of the day. I mean, the yeah. rest of the day. I've heard of that happening. You'd walk out of there at like midnight, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they claimed that in those 12 hours, at some point of inebriation, I would say, I'm going to be the first one playing to your brother Mike. But I don't frankly remember thinking that in a sober moment. Uh, so when I got here, I couldn't believe it. And I remember telling Warren, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was my reaction. Well, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in law of attraction, and if, and if alcohol can enhance that, so, so much the better. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I appreciate hearing all that. That's an amazing story. Um, can you maybe talk about 
as many as you'd like, but three or four of the, the, the highlights of, of your, your years here in New York that really stand out to you and, and maybe, maybe a couple of the big challenges uh, that you've faced over the, over the 33 years. Well, I'll tell you, the first big moment was this. Like I told you, not a confident guy about changing jobs. So when I came here, it also really occurred to my, it really occurred to me that it might not work out. I might not be here. And I hadn't made any kind of deal with, you know, I mean, I really, after what I'd already been through with Minnesota, I didn't have, <laughs> didn't have the guts to ask them to, like, provide me with some kind of cushion in terms of if this didn't work out, because I'd already burned them so bad on the way in. I, I couldn't burn them on the way out. Uh, so anyway, I got here, and in the second week I was here, we were playing a piece called Crown of India Suite by Elgar, which I've not played since. It's not a very good piece. In fact, we read through it, we read through it and Zubin said, I remember Zubin, who was Indian, of course, said, said, said they were in our land a hundred years, and he said, they didn't learn a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but during the course of rehearsing this piece, I had a little solo, and he looked back at me and said something like, you know, you're the guy. And it, it was so confirming, it really put me at ease. And that was my second week here. Wow. And so, and so, like, you know, I felt like he had ordained me, like, in front of the orchestra as, okay, you're going to be the guy. And it just made me feel comfortable. I've always been, so, so when you say, when you think back on moments, that was a big one. Because, I mean, it, I think it enabled me to feel sort of settled into a job that I don't think I would have felt had had it had he not said that. Yeah. So that was that was you know number one time. Okay. That's awesome. Wow. So that was you know okay. So then the next thing that happened, uh, I think, I mean not to run you through through three years chronologically, but I'll, I'll tell you the first really big playing moment. Though Zubin did all big stuff, but the really big playing moment was in June of that year. Uh, Tenstead came to town and he was not just starting to do things in the United States because he's East German and East Germany was just starting to let these guys out like mm -hmm. him and Mazur and stuff like that mm -hmm. right so he came and we did Mauer 5 and it was a private concert for a convention of the American Symphony Orchestra League so it was sort of and I went to the concert knowing as such this is going to be the United States' first impression of me as playing first arm because there are so many people here from different orchestras, right? And that went really well. I've still got that recording somewhere. Hmm. And, and that was the second time where I felt, okay, I, I, I now work here in mm -hmm. New York, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's a good thing. Those are, those are a couple of early good things. The, bad, the first bad thing happened in 1982. I get emotional about these things because it's sad. But uh, I was playing the Glier Concerto, and that starts with a uh, arpeggio up from the low. So I hit this low note. I went. I barely made that note, and that's a mid-high note. And I thought, my God, this is a twenty-five-minute concerto. And I barely made it out of the first bar here. And I'm in trouble already. And, and it came as a surprise. 
In other words, I didn't anticipate this. You felt I didn't know what the hell yeah. was going on. Wow. You know, and so I, I, I thought, wow, this is gonna be a tough twenty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so and here's and here's and here's the thing. There's a huge cadenza in the first moment. And by the time I got to that cadenza, <laughs> I I uh, was so uptight. I don't get dry when I get nervous. I was I was so dry. I was so dry. I felt like I hadn't seen water in months. And so my image, I'd go, I'd go, I'd go, I'd do a segment. I go, then I do another segment. Then I try to get moist. And I remember when we walked off stage after that, that performance should have lasted 25 minutes. I think it lasted about 30 because of that cadenza, right? <laughs> and when we walked off stage, uh, Zubin said, geez, that's great. <laughs> I thought that cadenza was never going to end. He says, right, you know, we were, we were going to do it on a tour. He says, we're cutting that cadenza. He says, we're cutting that cadenza. That's ridiculous, right? I said, no, 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 no. I said, no, no. I was, I was nervous, man. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what the hell is going on, but let's, let's, you know, it won't be like that. We'll go out. Went out the next night. It was the same thing, man. It was the same. It didn't go. So by the end of that week, I was in a slump. I, I consider I was in a slump, not because I was scared to death, but because I, I was, but because something wasn't something wasn't working. And I, for the life of me, you know, I don't know how I don't know how this cascades on you uh, uh, in a trombone, but on a horn, your breathing, your mouth, and your tongue are so intertwined that as soon as you do something stupid with your mouth, without thinking about it, you unconsciously adjust for, for your mouth with your air and your tongue, or vice versa. If you're doing something stupid with your tongue, your mouth and your air try and take over. So I mean, so you, can, you successfully compensate for a period of time, and then all of a sudden the house of cards comes tumbling down. And, yeah. and, the, and the thing is, at that point, you're aware of the fact that not one thing's going wrong. But many things are going wrong, and 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 the challenge is to try and figure out what's the cause and what's the effect. If the effect is that you're tightening your mouth more than usual, well then relaxing your mouth isn't going to help because that's not the cause. That's one of the reactions to the cause. It took me. It took me. It took, okay, that was that was that was February maybe. I was in Mont uh, uh, Wyoming. I was in Wyoming in June. And I thought, I'm going to just sit down in this room. So, I, so I mean, what the, the, the March, April, May, June, four months, four months, crisis, crisis. Afraid to come to work. Thought I was going to get fired. Hmm. And I thought, I'm going to sit in this room, sit down in this chair, and just keep playing. Just keep playing until I figure out what this is. That's a commitment. Mm. That's a commitment I made. Wow. I'm not getting out of this chair, but I know what's going on. And of course, you know. Wow, good as, for you. Huh? As soon as you as soon as you make that kind of choice, then the answer usually comes. So about ten minutes later, I knew I knew what the deal was. I I finally figured out what the causation was. Now here's one you don't run into on a trombone. I gained weight. Mm. The horn had moved out of my leg. And my hand, which ordinarily would have been like this, because the horn had moved out, because I gained weight, had to shut. Once you let that horn, sh that hand shut over that bell, it screws up your tongue. So all of a sudden, you can't get as clear an articulation. So again, my ear and my mouth had tried to tried to adjust for that fact.
and then then everything gone to hell. Once I took that hand out of the bill, I mean, once I, I once I straightened it out again, mm -hmm. I was I was uh, oh, I'd say it took two hours. Two hours to feel normal again. After four months, two oh. hours to feel normal again. Wow! So what I did was I went out and I got a ping pong uh, rubber uh, that you would put on one side of a ping pong paddle. Mm -hmm. I put that on my knee. The horn will rest on that without sliding. So I no longer have to like hold the horn with my hand. So I don't have the temptation to shut too much. Mm -hmm. But but that was my first. Okay. So that was 1982, right? Four months. I then went into a series of, 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 of having this kind of experience in one way or another every five years. 87. 92, 97. I thought, man, what in the hell's going on that every five years, everything, I seem to have some kind of major idiocy show up, right? And, but you know what that was? It? 97, 97 was the last, uh, the last kicker. And, and I don't know why. I guess, I guess those things that were really going to incapacitate me, because each time it was something different. It wasn't. It was never the hand again, because I, I I knew about the hand. So of course, when I started having trouble, that was the first thing Get I checked. Hand, yeah. Right. So I, I think I just ran through. Let's, that was eighty two, eighty seven, ninety two, ninety seven. So I must have had just four major things that I was just weren't solid about my technique, and I just had to learn the hard way. Every five years, hmm. what one of those was. Now I'll tell you that my my warm up coming out of that now. Is absolutely preventative towards the four things. <laughs> when I warm up, when I warm up in the morning, it's just to not have any of those four things reoccur. That's what it's all about, uh -huh. and I think that's why. Really, for for twenty one years, I'll have I'll have a week or two, you know, every year where I I don't feel like I can play the French horn. But man, before that, when I'm talking about this every five year slump, I'm talking about. Anything from two to six months where I felt out of sorts. You want to know what the last one was? I'll tell you about the last one. I had stomach surgery. You know, yeah, I remember when you had, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because at one point I weighed 500 pounds, right? So I thought, this is crazy. So I went and had uh, uh, bypass, bypass surgery done. And with so many of us that have had that surgery, the incision does not remain uh, closed. So you end up with a hole in your chest, right? So... Uh, I mean, a hole in your stomach wall. So I woke up one morning, and Christ Almighty, I, I could feel something like a softball here, right? And I, I, I thought, oh, that's weird. Well, I called up the doctor, and I said, should I get this? Uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't know all this stuff, but there are 13 levels of hernia, right? And the, and the one I think the brass players are usually dealing with is like number one or number two mm -hmm. down there at the bottom. Right. But I had like number eight or something because that was a, it was an op it was a, it was it was an incision that had opened up, so it wasn't down there. It was like right here. So I called my doctor up and I said, "Do you think is this going to affect my playing?" Don't ask your doctor anything about playing. He doesn't know. He <laughs> yeah. doesn't know. I right. Said, all right, all right. But I was stupid. He said, no, no, it's too high. Too high. Six months were like, this was, yeah, I, I didn't tell the truth on this. This was, this was like in the, this was like since 2000. Six months were like, I, I left the concert, and I, I live 40 miles from here at that time. I cry all the way home. 
My wife has said to me she could not go through a period like that again because wow. I was just so, you know, depressed. And so we got to the summer, and I thought, oh, God damn it. This is great. I've got two months to figure this out where I'm not having to perform every night. Yeah. And I thought I did. I thought I had it figured out. And we went on a tour immediately. And we got about two concerts out, and I thought, I thought, so I was sitting backstage. We were playing a building where, where our warm-up room for the brass was a library. And I thought, well, shit. Maybe that guy's wrong. So I just took a book out of this library and put it under my belt and strapped it down. Two days later, I could play. Two days later, I was normal again. I mean, it wasn't I was on my way back to being normal. Mm -hmm. Two days later, I was normal again. So, you know, all I, all I can tell you is I think that when, when I went like this, that instead of getting that full, this was popping for an instant mm, or something. Yeah. Something was throwing off the deal. Wow. I now wear, I now, every time I play now, I wear a weight belt. That, that Oh, I had a hernia operation. <laughs> I had a hernia operation. So I thought, I thought, okay, that doctor was right. I'm going to get this sewn up, right? So you go in and they put a patch over you now. That, that, you know, and I walked out of there and I thought, man, this is great. Two weeks later, two weeks later, it ripped out, right? So I think this is really this is really screwy. I'm gonna call a doctor, right? So I call the doctor. Guy, guy retired. He retired enough to. I was one of his last <laughs> operations, right? So I think I think this is crazy. So I went out and bought a weight belt, um, and I wear a weight belt when I play, and that prevents that. Okay. Wow. And and so you know once I but once I really once I started strapping a book in there, now I use a weight belt instead of a book. But 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 but. For anybody that's had a hernia or an incision, I mean, I mean, not not the hernia down here, but anything in here, operation related. If you put a weight belt, weight belt in there, I'm telling you, it can really make a pretty vast difference because, mm. because, like I say, six months of really, really, really bad stuff, fighting every moment. Two days later, you're back to normal. Mm -hmm. That's worth twenty-three dollar weight belt. I would think so. Yeah. Wow. Well, Phil, thank you for sharing all that. I mean, no, I, I, I mean that. I mean, it, it's obviously a very days of our lives. No, it's an, it's a clearly uh, you know very emotional thing for you, and and a lot of people you know wouldn't have the courage to talk about it. So thank you for uh, sharing that, and it's good for you know. Look, you know, no matter how you look at it, you're Phil Myers, and and tons and tons of people look up to you, and the fact that you're willing to to share that and let people know. Hey, this happened to me. It, it 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 makes us all like realize, you know, it's it's we're all in this together in a certain kind of way, and we're trying to trying to figure out our way through it. You know, along those lines, this kind of leads into a question I wanted to talk to you about. Um, you know, many years ago, we were talking before the interview. Uh, we were doing a film score session, and it was involving some students. I can't remember exactly all the particulars, but what I do remember about that session was the conductor. It wasn't particularly a strong conductor, a young person trying to learn their way in the, in the, in the uh, realm of what they were doing. And they were getting on somebody. It wasn't you and it wasn't me. I just remember. And you kind of just took a, the bull by the horns and said, look, you getting on this person is not going to make them play this any better. And they're clearly getting nervous. And you just had a way, I can't even remember all the things you said, but I remember going up to you after the session and saying, man, what you just said there was worth gold to all of us. Everybody in that room got something out of that. 
And I remember us having a conversation about nerves. And, you know, I think I get nervous. Uh, I think everybody has a tendency to get nervous. I mean, I remember reading an article about Miles Davis saying how he gets nervous. He looks like a person who wouldn't have a nervous bone in his body, but he said he got nervous every time he played. So I'm wondering if you could share along the lines of what you were talking about, you know, how you have dealt with nerves over the years and anxiety. And, and I, I can't imagine a more stressful position than, than a principal win position in a major symphony orchestra. But um, clearly we all deal with it. If you're auditioning to get into Juilliard or New England Conservatory or whatever, but I know you have some good thoughts about that, and maybe you could share share some of your ideas with us. All right. Well, I hope my answers aren't aren't gonna, Frank. I hope my answer this isn't going to disappoint you too much. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, if, I mean, there are a lot of things I can say about this. I mean, the first the first thing is that that the better the the better I know the piece of music I'm going to play the much more calm I feel. And, and so I do a tremendous amount of pre-study of pieces. And I don't mean horn part. I mean, I mean, I want to know, you know, I want to know if I'm looking at a forte in my part. Well, you know, horn, trombone, same thing. Most, most, of, most of the stuff we're playing is accompaniment to somebody else. So who am I accompanying? And for instance, if I'm accompanying a clarinet player, and it says forte in my part. Well, to me, that means it's forte in his part. If he plays forte, I can support that. If he doesn't play forte, I can't even, play, I can't even pretend to play forte. I, that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. if, I, if I know ahead of time exactly what my game plan is, that does a long way towards calming me. The second thing is this, and I've told this to every, every uh, uh, woman that I've ever gone out with. I cannot have... I cannot have a deep conversation about something uh, a couple hours before I'm going to perform. You know, I've got to go out there on stage as much as possible with a, with, a, with a blank slate. Because basically, you know what I'm there for? To me, the most successful performance I can have is where I feel like a member of the audience. I happen to be playing, but I'm experiencing the music in the same way that they are. We're, we're playing Bach bass, bass Mass in B minor, and it's got a movement uh, um, uh, that's got a big horn part. That's not nearly the, the part of that piece I most enjoy. Mm. Two moments before I play, there's a movement for, with, with two flutes and s strings that just sends me over the edge. <laughs> and if I, and you know, that just. So even when I'm playing, I want to feel that same way as if I'm listening to what's going on as opposed to producing what's going on. And, and the more I can get into that, that head, the better off I am. Now, let's talk about when I can't. Let's talk about when I can't get in that head. Well, all right. You know, in 1988, I um, had a gallbladder operation. Couldn't play for 10 weeks. Because back in those days, uh, they, they opened you. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, uh, where they went through a couple little holes that healed right away. No, they chopped you, boy. They made a foot-long incision, and, you, and they cut right into your muscle wall. Mm -hmm. So they had to stitch that up, and you couldn't, you couldn't go like that for 10 weeks, right? I mean, you know, it had to heal, right? So um, I came back after 10 weeks, and I didn't know at the time <laughs> what had gone wrong. Um, 
this is 87. I said, 80, yeah. But when I came back, I just simply got set on a mouthpiece somehow where my lips were way too far apart. And I didn't know it. I didn't know it. So we go, I come back, and the first thing we're playing is Brooker 4. And, and it doesn't really work too well to have your lips set too far apart from mm. Brooker 4. And, <laughs> and Schoenberg Chamber Symphony number 1. And we were taking him to Europe on tour. And we played him in the parks here a couple times. And I was killing these things, man. I mean, I was really bad. And, and Zubin, called, Zubin, this is Zubin, Zubin called me and he says, Come on in, you know, you just had an operation. <laughs> you, you just came back. Let Jerome play. Let Ashby play. I said, no, it's, you know, I, I, said, I said to him, I understand your concern, but I told him the same thing I had with that concern. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said, I understand your concern, but you've got nothing to worry about. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn around, no problem. We went on that tour, man. I baked that thing every night. I mean, it was horrible. I tell you, it was so bad. And these were five-week tours. <laughs> I killed that thing for five weeks. It was so bad that I developed like I developed like scales all over my body. I looked like fish. I, I, I was wearing only talk about somebody only wearing long sleeve shirts. I, I and then and before I was going to leave the room, I would take like hand lotion and just like bathe my hands and hands because then that made it made them a little bit less obvious, right? So man, I mean, like I was I was in bad shape, and I went to the doctor on that tour, and I said, I said, I said. I don't think I can, because we always tour with a doctor. I said, I don't think we can, I don't, I, yeah, I've always thought we should tour with a psychiatrist, but in fact, we don't. <laughs> we tour with a doctor. I went into him and I said, I don't think I can go on stage anymore unless you give me some of that Enderol. I've got to try it. i got to try it. Because mm. I, don't, I don't think I can make myself go on stage. And he, so he gave me a bunch. So I started pumping Enderol, and man, I was still going out there murdering this stuff. But, but what Enderol does is it is it is it it doesn't change what you feel in your head but that confirmation that you get from your body that you're in deep trouble you don't get it mm. i mean you know that bad feeling in your stomach or that bad feeling in your chest it's not there so your your brain is saying man i'm screwed and your body is not that's all that's all enderol enderol is the absence of a feeling mm. enderol is not it, it isn't a feeling it's the absence of that all that nerve associated body feeling all right wouldn't have made it through that tour without it. And I didn't figure out until two months later. I went from August to November not knowing what, what was going on. And then I finally, I finally figured it out. Now, like I say, I, 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 I warm up now in a way that we're, it's impossible for my lips not to be together. But um, um, so that was my first experience with Andrew. And here was the deal. Once I could play again. I didn't feel the need, right? So I, I think what I tell people about Enderol is this. Enderol breaks, in a, in a way, the cycle of fear. Because I think had I gone through that four months feeling the full experience of being scared out of my mind to go on stage, that I'm not sure I would have recovered from that. But the fact that I could, I could at least lessen the feelings that I I was able to get back to where I felt confident about going on stage. Hmm. I'm not sure I would have gotten there without Enderol. So that was 88. And I would tell you that since 88, I've used Enderol periodically. Anytime I feel like I'm entering a cycle of fear. And ordinarily at this point, if I take it for a couple of weeks, it destroys that cycle. Now I'm back on track. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think when people think about taking Enderol, they, they, I, you hear quite often people say, I don't want to take, I don't want to feel like I have to take a drug to go on stage for the rest of my life. You're not going to feel that way. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel that way until you start feeling better about your playing again, which you probably will. Uh, if you're like me, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's this kind of ride. But I would certainly say to anybody, I think saying to yourself, I just refuse to take drugs to help myself out uh, is, is foolhardy. And I think it's foolhardy for somebody that's auditioning, that's making no money. But I think it's, it, would be, it would be absolutely irresponsible, say, for instance, for somebody who's got a family and two kids, and they're making, making a living in music, and now they're having trouble, and they're saying, I won't try this. Are you crazy? Hmm. There's too much to lose. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would just say, you know, don't, don't make a lifetime commitment to anything. Mm -hmm. But to have that be something that, that, that you use when you have to, or you certainly try, I, I would encourage it myself. Yeah. So It seems like, I mean, not to use a, a sports analogy, but, you know, what you just described, you, you're using it to break the cycle so that you put your head back into a place of confidence. And, and you know, we've mentioned law of attraction earlier, but you get to the point where, yes, I do sound good and, and I can reproduce this on a nightly basis. And you start to gain confidence like an athlete does and, and suddenly they're back. So in that sense, I, I totally agree with you. I don't see how you cannot uh, try it if, if that's the thing that's going to break the cycle for you. Do you, you know? think if you said that one of these batters that's going through a slump that's making millions of dollars a year, listen, take Enderol for a couple of weeks because it'll help you, they'd say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm sure. Are you crazy? I mean, no, it's too much money. It's too, you know, the other, the other thing I should mention is this. I think that we all get into the head that we should be 100% all the time. Nobody, I swear to God, nobody's going to think it's weird if a baseball player has a slump this year for a couple months and then comes out of it. They say, well, that's a normal part of a career. But musicians themselves seem to put such a burden on themselves that I must be 100% at all time or I am failing. Not going to happen. I, I, you know, we were talking earlier, uh, you know, these, these guys that, that win the New York Marathon, that doesn't mean they win the Boston Marathon that year or the next, mm -hmm. the next marathon. You know, maybe they win a golfer. A golfer wins a couple tournaments a year. That means he's lost 38, but he's had a great year. Yeah. But musicians act like if I haven't played 40 perfect concerts, it's a crisis. I, I really try not to buy into that. Yeah. I try and buy into consistency of, of effort and sincere effort as opposed to consistency of result. I can't totally control the result. All I can do is control yeah. the effort going in. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with you, Phil. It's really well said on your part. I know, I know a lot of times when I've done jazz records and whatnot, and I've just played a solo that I was really disappointed in, and I, it took me years to get to the point of just saying to myself, you know what, that's what I had today. And I don't, it's not my favorite stuff, but you know, it gave it the best that I had, and, and it wasn't great. And hopefully you know, in the future you're going to learn from that and gain from that. And, and, uh, and I agree with you. It's like you, know, it's, you can't... It's, it's virtually impossible to play perfectly all the time. So as soon as we can kind of mentally accept that, I think it gets us out of that and enables us to get back on track quicker, seems, yeah. seems to me. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate all your words. I mean, this is incredibly good advice for, 
for all professionals and young people coming up that this is what is part of the part of the process. Well, Phil, thank you for all those those thoughts. And I think the fact that you have the, the candor and the honesty to talk about it, it we all appreciate it because uh, I think you're right. It's like a lot of people are not going to talk about this, but it should be talked about it and it should be talked about, excuse me. And um, this is how you're going to get over the hump is by talking about it and realizing that it is, it's a reality for all of us. And uh, anyway, thank yeah. you for talking yeah. about it. Um, I just had a couple questions left and uh, um, I just wanted to touch on um, the fact that I've always been amazed that it's yourself, Phil Smith and Joe Alessi, I consider the three finest principal brass players anywhere in the world. You guys all ended up in the same orchestra, roughly the same time period of your careers. Um, I, I found it astounding and I've enjoyed and I, as have as have all brass fans have loved it for, for the past uh, 30 years or so. And um, can you just talk a little bit about your relationship with Phil and Joe, how it's evolved over the years and, and you know, maybe just how, what your guys' outlook on, on it might be? God, man, you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. But you know the thing that amazes me the most about the New York Philharmonic is that, like, if somebody says to me, you know, let's, I mean, let, let's say somebody came in and said, okay, okay, we're going to take a vote on, uh, you know, somebody's going to come into this room and hand each of you $500, or they're not going to. Now, let's take a vote on it, and if you vote that they will, uh, then they're going to come in and give you 500 bucks. So you think, you think well, well sh sh surely people are going to vote to get the 500. So, so Phil, predict what, how this vote's going to turn out. I, I'll say, well, you know, I think they're going to vote for getting the 500 bucks. I'm, I, am, I don't seem to be able to ever guess how that vote's going to come out, no matter how obvious it seems, right? So when you say to me, what, you know, what do you and Phil Smith and, and, and Joe Alessi, and, 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 you know, my answer to that is, you know, I haven't been able to figure out what those guys have been thinking for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. When push I didn't think that was going to be your answer. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, no. no, when push comes to shove, I really don't know what those guys are thinking. I will tell you that in my opinion, I don't know whether, I don't know whether they would agree with this or not. But I think we were all taught a rather odd thing. In my opinion, I haven't talked this over with them, so they might, they might stone cold disagree with this. Mm. But I think we were all raised, every one of us was being raised, told that good was normal. And I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that's true. I think good, I think when something's good, that's almost unusual. That's, that's exceptional. That's great. That's wonderful. That's something to be excited about. My father didn't view it that way. My father's view of, of, of it was that that was just to be expected, that things would be good. And the only thing to be dealt with was think, when things were less than good. And if things were less than good, that, would, that meant that you hadn't met your responsibility. Well, I mean, I think that's a rather, I now, I now think that's a rather negative motivation kind of thing. For instance, he truly felt that if you couldn't, you, there would be, no desire inside of you for tomorrow to be better than today, mm -hmm. unless you felt bad about today. But then when you got to tomorrow, you had to feel bad about tomorrow for it to be, so it was sort of a series of days where you had to feel bad for the next day to be good. 
Oh, that's a tough way to live. Mm, that's mm, a tough way mm -hmm. to live. So I had to, I had to revise on that, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I wouldn't, let me just say, I wouldn't be surprised to hear that Phil Smith and Joel Essie both also feel that they were taught that good was normal and anything else was uh, bad, abnormal, and they shared at least some responsibility for the fact that things weren't right. Because I think what I would say is that, that, that when things aren't right, we all feel a responsibility for the fact that it isn't, mm -hmm. and we'd like to see that change. Uh, if only in service to uh, the memory of our fathers. <laughs> well, I, I, Phil, Phil Smith's father is very nice. He's still alive, but the, but the, but Joe's father's dead. My father's dead, and and I think, yeah, I think it's I think it's that feeling of if things aren't going right, it is. It's not the other guy's responsibility. It's your responsibility. If you just had to say one thing, I would say I think we all. Feel that way. Wow. Yeah, that's a really thoughtful answer. I mean, that's that's wow. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> it's it's a great way to to explain something and look at things and and the re certainly personal responsibility is huge in life and and in playing. So the fact that all three of you share that it's uh, probably explains a lot without having to go any further. So. Um, Phil, our last question, which I tend to end with this, and I think it's helpful because there's so many, so many people who look up to you, myself included. Um, I like to finish the interview. Just if you were to give one piece of advice to uh, a young musician out there or a young French horn player who wants to be an orchestral musician or dreams of becoming the next Phil Myers, uh, if you could capsulize it down to one piece of advice, what would it be? Quite easy. Uh, we touched on it before. And that is, I think you have to feel yourself driven by uh, curiosity. Are you just simply interested in hearing that next record? Uh, are you interested in hearing that next performance? Um, I mean, is this, if you're having to make yourself do it, or someone else is uh, sort of putting the force on you to do it. I don't think in the long term that's going to work out. You know, my mother made me practice the piano. My father was supposed to be in charge of the horn, and he never said anything to me about practicing. Um, and I think, I, think that was, I think that was good. It was, strictly, it was strictly my curiosity about it. I mean, so I would say that. Just, just ask yourself at any given stage, is this something I really want to do? And is this something that, like, I can almost not do anything else because I'm just so darn curious about this? We had a guy in our orchestra that got into trouble and ended up having to resign. Uh, got into trouble playing. He was having trouble playing, so he ended up having to resign. And he said to me, my problem is I can't find anything else I'm passionate about like I was about this, hmm. which was why he had succeeded in the first place because mm -hmm. he was just so – he was – like the most passionate about it. And so I would say, I would say monitor that. And then, and then the only other thing I'd say is this. It would not occur to anybody to learn French without ever hearing anybody else speak French. And, or, or you know, you would say, yeah, I'm going to learn German, but I don't want to hear everybody speak it. No, <laughs> you just wouldn't think that, right? Yeah. But I deal with a tremendous amount of students that think, 
that, that they have nothing to gain by going to hear a, a performance or a concert. And to me, I, this, is, this is just as, would be just as crazy. I want to do music, but I never want to hear it. Because I know for myself, especially with records, I ordinarily had 15, 16 records of the same piece. And I would sit there and figure out which one I liked the best and why. And then just, here's my final thing. When I came here, I'd never played first horn on Brahms' first symphony. And there was a big solo at the end of it. And I just didn't know how I was going to play it. I didn't trust my own concept of that at, 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 at age 30. Hmm. I thought, maybe I'll go in and do something that sounds really stupid, and I shouldn't be doing that because I'm working here. So I had 15 records of that piece. And I sat down, and I just listened to 15 guys play that, and absolutely just stone-cold copied the one I liked the best. Hmm. That was just how I started out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I find a lot of students now, they're not going to concerts. So they're just sort of like going by what they think, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to take that approach when I was 30. Yeah. I can't imagine taking that approach when I'm 20. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I would say go to concerts and follow your curiosity. Those, <laughs> those are. <laughs> Phil, it's great advice. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you, A, for taking time out of your schedule. And, and, and I want to thank you for your honesty and uh, openness and, and emotion that you put in everything. You put it in a conversation, you put it in the French horn, and really appreciate it. Of course, we appreciate the, the years of incredible playing and inspiration that you've given us all. And um, I hope everybody got a lot out of this today. I, I was looking forward to talking to Phil today, and I know I got a ton out of hearing all the things he had to say. So, Phil, thank you uh, for a great interview. Hope you all enjoyed it, and we will see you next time on Bone to Pick. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you want to honor your band director and win some great swag for your band program? Please like us on Facebook at Facebook.com and vote for your favorite educator at our Band Director of the Month program. Don't forget to visit www.hipbonemusic.com for more great interviews, information, and for a complete lineup of method books. We're here to help you get better. Thanks for listening.